Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Are a Christian to not be tempted to struggle with this. And I love the example that Eric set for us that is a perfect way to avoid falling into this trap with his prayer. He was focused on his own faults instead of other people's. And he didn't know the flavor or the necessarily the passage of what I was going to be talking about today. But he modeled what we need so beautifully because there is a standard as a follower of Jesus. And the temptation is always to look at people who aren't following that standard outside of us instead of examining our own hearts. So thank you for for modeling that this morning. That was perfect. We're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. You can follow along in your notes or you can open up in scripture if you'd like. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of all the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Last Sunday... We learned from James that it's wrong to show partiality for any reason when we gather as a church. But what about people outside of the church? In this week's passage, James expands the application by tying it to the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' definition of neighbor is whoever happens to be on your path. Whoever happens to be in front of you. Whoever happens to be around you. So James is instructing us, if you take Jesus seriously, which a lot of the book of James is just an echo and reverberation of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' central ethical teaching, If you take James serious, and if you take Jesus seriously, you will love and show mercy to everyone. That's your neighbor. I've been in groups where I was an outsider, and I felt like an outsider, because the group showed partiality to themselves. And I've been in groups where I was an outsider, but I felt the warm embrace of love and acceptance. This is what James is trying to cultivate in this passage. When I was, after my freshman year in college, um, I was invited to go up through Canada with the Chicago ambassadors down to Cuba. 
and um, it was a mission trip organization, and I didn't fully understand that, but my roommate, who was a really good basketball player, was asked to be on this mission ambassador group through Canada to Cuba, and they were going to play the Cuban Olympic team that played the dream team, so I thought that would be really, really cool to be able to play them, and... My roommate in college, he was much better than me, but he said, you know what, I I've already have commitments this summer, I can't go, but you should take my roommate, Greg. Um, so they asked me to go, and I didn't realize so much that it was like a Christian mission trip. I thought we were just going to play basketball, and even though I grew up in church, even though my parents were phenomenal, and great models of being a Christian. Um, every kid has to make their own decision, and I just wasn't into it at the time. I wasn't following Jesus, wasn't interested. So the first night when we met these, when I met these people who are gonna be my teammates, we met in Chicago, we practiced, it was awesome. We learned some plays, we got to know each other, and then we went to someone's house, and we were all sitting around eating pizza, and the coach says, Let's share our testimonies. Let's share our stories about how we came to know Jesus. And I was like, oh, okay, how'd this come up? All right. And so everyone's sharing, and they're talking about, like, you know, before I met Jesus, I was going down all these self-destructive paths. I was into all sorts of trouble. They were naming all these things that they were doing and then I met Jesus, and my life completely changed, and here's where I'm at now, and it got to be my turn, and I was like, this is funny, because actually, all the things you guys are saying about what your life was like before Jesus, that's what my life is like right now. And they were like, oh, okay, glad you're with us. And it was kind of like, they could have at that moment been you know, shown partiality to just themselves. They could have been not loving. They could have been cold. They could have been judgmental. They could have been self-righteous. They could have been, you know, not merciful instead of merciful, but they were warm and they were kind. And I could have got them in so much trouble because on the, I mean, I did so many dumb things and I'm not going to tell you all that I did, but I was on the way there, I talked to the coach. I said, Coach, I know this is a Christian thing. There's no way I'm going to Cuba and not getting some Cohibas. There's no way I'm not bringing some of those back to the United States. He's like, Greg, not only is that not cool, <laughs> that's actually illegal. There is a thing called an embargo. If you get caught with that, you just shouldn't do that. I did it anyways. There are so many things I should not have done. I snuck out in the middle of the night. I went to the bar. I'm on a Christian mission trip, and I am not interested. And these guys, I'm a button pusher anyways, if you didn't know that. These guys could have looked at me self-righteously and made me feel like I'm not as good as you guys. And they laughed when they saw me packing the cohibas in my pant legs, trying to smuggle them back to the United States. They laughed when they heard what, that I snuck out. They, but they didn't compromise their own values, their own ethics. My cold, hard heart towards Jesus at that time of my life was warmed and softened 
It was God's kindness through them that led me to repentance. In verse 8, James mentions the royal law. If we were to take all of Jesus' teachings about how we are to treat others, how we are to live as citizens of his kingdom right now, and if we were to condense and summarize all of his commandments about how to live as a neighbor to the world, they could be summarized by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we simply do that, we are fulfilling all of his commandments in regards to how do we treat other people. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5.14. It's in your notes at the bottom. Maybe it isn't actually, I just remembered. I don't think I put it in there. Trust me, this is what it says. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Paul saying every ethical imperative in scripture Every commandment can be summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. If you show partiality, if we show partiality, we're not acting in love. And James shows us that's as bad as breaking any other commandment, be it murder, adultery, whatever it is. On top of that in today's passage, verses 12 and 13 include mercy into the constellation of things that love looks and feels like. Let's read that again, verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we have entrusted our lives to Jesus, we, more than anyone else, ought to be known for showing mercy to others. Now, if we're supposed to love our neighbors, which is everyone, and we're supposed to be merciful to our neighbors, which is everyone, what prevents us from doing that? Maybe another way we could approach that question is, who does the church have difficulty showing mercy to. James' example from last week is poor people. At that time, they believed that wealth was a sign of favor from God, so they were treated differently. But how do we show partiality today? How do we have, difficult, how do we have difficulty showing mercy today? Who is it difficult for us to show mercy to today? This is where my preparation got painful because no matter how mature you are as a follower of Jesus, you always gravitate towards self-righteousness because we want the gospel to be about us instead of what Jesus did for us. The church has difficulty loving and showing mercy to people that we believe are morally inferior to us. And there's a name for that type of behavior. Does anyone want to guess what it is? What describes someone who acts like they are morally superior to you? Self-righteous. Jesus went to war 
against self-righteousness. Because you cannot be self-righteous and merciful at the same time. Self-righteousness means I see your faults more clearly than I see my own faults. As we saw modeled in the pastoral prayer today, it is better to see my faults more than I see your faults. If we want to live out the royal law, if we want to purge ourselves from partiality, if we want to grow in mercy, we need to constantly address the gravitational pull towards self-righteousness. You can't be self-righteous and merciful at the same time. Let's say I'm a first century religious person and I get 10 minutes with Jesus. I get a 10 minute one-on-one conversation with Jesus. Based on what I see in my slow reads through the gospel, Based on what I see, his interactions are like with religious people and people who are outside of the kingdom when they first engage with him. Based on what I see in him, in those 10 minutes, for me, one of his main goals is going to be exposing the tiny little slivers of self-righteousness in my belief system about myself. One of his goals in our conversation will be to get me to stop seeing how bad everyone else is in order to see how bad I still am. To stop condemning the world around me and to become acutely aware of my sinfulness. Because that is the quickest way to turn a self-righteous person into a merciful person. And if you want to read one of Jesus' most stinging indictments against self-righteousness, and this is not for the faint of heart, but if you're interested, you can write this passage down. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You've probably read it before. Read it again. And imagine yourself as the, the bad example and ask Jesus if there's anything in you that might resemble the bad example and see what he has to say. Paul had his own way of exposing exposing self-righteousness. This is in your notes, okay? So if you have your notes, follow. It's on the bottom of the page. And, And Paul's tricky. He's sly. He knows how to lay a trap. And that's what he does in this passage. His goal is to expose in the reader their self-righteousness. Galatians, he's saying, the point of Galatians is, you think you were saved by faith, by God's grace, and then you grow in your own strength, you become good in your own strength? It's all grace. So one of his goals in this passage, Galatians 5, 19 through 20, is to expose self-righteousness. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. Feel the sting of this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. He's laid a trap. You know why? Because you and I are reading that, and we're like, I haven't done any 
you know, gross sexual sin. I'm, I'm not into sorcery. Yeah, those are the works of the flesh. That is evil. That is bad. And I can think of people that have done that. He lays a snare and we step right into it because then he says, and also, enmity, ill will. Do you have any ill will in your life toward anyone toward any group of people, strife. Sure, we're not practicing sorcery, but I bet we could find strife somewhere in our life. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Uh Uh-oh. The trap is, we read the first part and we feel really, really good about ourselves because we can think of a lot of people that are doing those things, but that's not us. And then Paul says, but if you don't really like someone, that's just as bad. We like seeing the sin in others that we don't struggle with and we will condemn them It's the same thing James does in today's passage when he links partiality with murder. Paul, in Galatians 5, tricks us into seeing our own mess. He moves our eyes from other people's messed upness to our own messed upness, and that is the quickest way to short-circuit self-righteousness. It's the quickest way to short-circuit partiality. It's the quickest way to increase mercy. Let's make this incredibly practical. We should not listen to any talking head on the radio, on TV, online, who in any way serves to inflame our sense of moral superiority. Can I say this? We should not be listening to any pastor, including present company, who only serves to inflame your sense of moral superiority. Because if that's the case, if you're leaving here after having heard me correctly and you feel more moral superior than anybody else, I've preached a false gospel because I've made it about you instead of Jesus. Stay with me here. We should walk away from every sermon in absolute awe of how great God is, not how great we are. It absolutely blows my mind that there are some famous pastors who preach entire sermon series about how idiotic the world is around us. I'm not sure how you could be more self-righteous. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That's Paul talking to the Corinthian church. 
Why do you demean others when apart from the grace and mercy of God, you're not so great yourself? There was nothing of merit about us that made us acceptable to God. It was Jesus' merit alone. And the minute we forget about that and put that off center, we start getting self-righteous and weird and condemning. This is a warning that's all over Scripture. If we're going to love our neighbor, which is everyone, if we're going to be merciful, we've got to be vigilant in guarding ourselves against self-righteousness. We're not impartial when we're self-righteous. We're not loving when we're self-righteous. We're not merciful when we're self-righteous. Self-righteousness makes you mean. And it's a plague to the church. It's a plague to the gospel. Um, I've mentioned this before. It's worth it because it's so true it's worth saying it again. I was in Fort Lauderdale getting a master class on pastoral ministry from Steve Brown. And he said 10% of the people in a church are some of the meanest people on earth. 90% may be confused, but are really good people. The problem is that the 10% are often in leadership because they talk about God a lot and they talk a lot. If you compliment and affirm the 10%, you will live a comfortable life. But if you minister to the 90%, you'll go through hell and you might not survive. But if you do, you will create a church that is a healing place. And the world will beat a pathway to your door. What would it feel like to be a part of a church that's filled with people who are more impressed with God than ourselves? We're so alert to our own need for God's mercy that any visitor who walks through the doors, no matter where they are in their journey, they notice mercy and grace first. If we're going to be a church that is more known for embodying the royal law of love and mercy than we are for self-righteousness and partiality, there's a strand of theology that we need to be very leery about. It, we can call it stockade theology. A stockade is a defensive barrier that is built to keep certain people out. Stockade theology will make us into a church that is uninviting and unwelcoming to people who are not like us. Stockade theology will encourage us to stroke one another's egos by constantly discussing how messed up everybody else is, how the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Stockade theology inevitably leads us to ignore Jesus' teaching about loving our neighbors outside of the church. We, just like the lawyer who is trying to trap Jesus, will pin Jesus down and ask him to define who our neighbor is. And Jesus' answer will be the same. Your neighbor is the one that you show mercy to. Stockade theology eventually leads us to neglecting the great commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples of everyone. Sometimes the church acts as though our whole goal in life is to spend the least amount of time as possible with people who aren't Christians. That's stockade theology. I, um, I was in Fort Lauderdale again for that same class that I talked about earlier and there was a, a big, famous, mega 
multiplex, complex church that's in the area. And one of my friends in the class had a connection with one of the, one of the, the guards at this church. And so he said, let's go take a tour of the megaplex. I've heard about this place. I want to go see it. So we went and we got in, we got in a, like a gator. We were driving around the campus of this church. They had a restaurant. They had a coffee shop. They had a bookstore. They had... A beautiful gym. They had practice facilities for all the sports. They had a stadium for their football teams. They had, I mean, everything. They had a park. They had a nursery. I mean, everything. Multi-building, huge, sprawling campus. It was like Disneyland for Christian people. And after the tour, we were all kind of like standing in a circle and just talking, and the guy was like, you know, he was obviously very proud of it and, and just said, uh, what'd you think? What'd you think? And I can be snarky and I can push buttons. And I said, I think it's a little creepy. <laughs> He's like, creepy? This is like the most Christian place you'll ever. And I was like, yeah, that's why it's so creepy. It's, um, you don't ever have to be around people who aren't Christians. Yeah. I, I didn't even know where to begin. I mean, I, it was like, I guess you could technically call that, that's an, it's over-realized eschatology. You know what that means? It means you think you should be in heaven right now. It means you think you shouldn't have to deal with people who don't have your ethical stance, who aren't a kingdom, who aren't in the kingdom of God, who don't share your convictions about how we're supposed to live morally. An over-realized eschatology means you only want to be around people who think and act just like you, which means by implication you're going to ignore Jesus' call to love your neighbor as yourself, and which also means you're going to neglect the Great Commission, which is go make disciples of all nations, because if you're always hanging around Christians, how are you possibly going to do that? And there's other ways we can get kind of nitpicky about this. I'm not thrilled about Christian business directories. Because what? You're only going to do business with people who are Christians? Why? Stockade theology is a dangerous strand of theology that began to make its way into the church when pietism in the 16th and 17th centuries became big. It affected the way we do revivalism, and it affected the way that we think about how we're supposed to live in the world. Pietism has a lot of really good things. The Puritans were pietists. Puritans are my favorite theologians. The problem is they were wrong on some things. Not necessarily the things that you think they are by reading the Scarlet Letter and things like that. They weren't like that. That's just not true. But they were more narrow than Scripture. And a lot of people thought that was good. And the problem with that is nobody is as good as you. That's what you begin to believe. That's what you begin to think. And the church now is constantly tempted to build walls around itself so we don't have to deal with the screwed up world. That's insane. That's not Jesus. That's self-righteousness. That's not why he died on the cross. It wasn't just for you. 
It was for everyone. Stockade theology emphasizes separation over mission. Rather than reaching a broken world, we just kind of avoid them. Stockade theology finds strange ways to avoid interacting with normal people. Halloween's coming up. We have this talk every year. We Christians get really weird about this. I know you watched a YouTube video. Don't forward it to me. I've probably thought about this as much as you. In fact, for people who give me a hard time about Halloween, I ask them, what month do you call this? And they say August. And I said, boom, how far down do you want to go down the rabbit hole? You know why? Because by you calling this August, you are worshiping Augustus Caesar. This was named August as an affirmation of his deity. So that when we call, when we name time after him, we are worshiping him. July, Julius Caesar. How far down the the rabbit hole do you want to go? You want to talk about Halloween? Don't send me the YouTube video. You are not opening demonic strongholds by passing out candy on Halloween. I don't care what the guy on the radio said. I don't care what the guy on 103.3 said. He's wrong. We're not doing trunk or treat as a church. We're not celebrating Reformation Day on October 31st and dressing up as characters in the Reformation. This is why the world thinks we're weird. The world is supposed to think that we're weird, but for different reasons, because of our tenacious commitment to integrity and honesty, our constant insistence on honoring our spouse instead of degrading him or her, our profound sense of contentment in life, our ever-increasing gratitude for God and his goodness, our ever-increasing vision of the spiritual life and the spiritual world instead of the myopic vision of just what's in front of us. There's a lot of reasons why the world should think that we're weird because of our ethics and because of our convictions and because of our love for God. Not participating in Halloween is not one of those reasons. Stay home. Turn your porch light on. Don't pass out the cheap stuff. Nobody eats the dum-dums. Those dumb, dumb lollipops, you might as well just like throw your money away. Those always get thrown away. Get the good stuff. Don't, please, don't pass out gospel tracts instead of candy. I'll make a deal with you. You can pass out gospel tracts if you pass out the giant candy bars too. That's the only reason. Because if you need gospel tracts to let your neighbor know that you're a Christian, there's other things we should probably talk about. Let's pull it together. If you focus on loving your neighbor and showing mercy, you're good to go. Are there ethical standards that God has called us to? Yes. But as Steve Brown says, We should always teach the law in the context of a God who hugs you. Be watchful against self-righteousness. We as a church will be watchful against stockade theology. Live your life by that royal law 
of loving your neighbor as yourself. Show mercy. Don't be uptight. Have enough faith in Christ and what you have been given through his life and death and resurrection to be a gentle, kind, loving, easy-to-be-around person. Unimpressed with yourself, very impressed with Jesus. And you will give mercy, and you will receive mercy, and you will show no partiality. Whoever crosses your path, they will sense, they will experience the love of God that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.